welcome to our series. It's called Intensive Care, and it's about when you go through a time in life when you need God's help in a big way. And I started the series last week by telling you that I had such an experience in my life last year. I was very candid with you about how that with exhaustion and some physical illness that I sort of hit a wall. And out of that experience, I learned a whole lot about how to interact with God or how God interacts with us when things are, things are tough. I want to talk today about something that I deal with a great deal. And I've always been honest with you about this. This is my biggest issue. I want to talk to you about anxiety. Because to be honest with you, even though I dealt with physical illness last year and stress and exhaustion, there was a moment, just between you and me, there was a moment where I knew that my biggest issue was that anxiety was driving the train. Now, all of us deal with anxiety, every one of us, 100% of us. But my guess is that I have a few brothers and sisters here that deal with it in a major league way. And I probably know a few things about you because I know myself and knowing myself and my personality, I'm guessing I know some things about you. I'm guessing that you tend to be rather intuitive in life. You can be in a circumstance or a situation and be in a room full of people and intuitively you'll have a sense of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And oftentimes, the part of you that can be prone to anxiety, if it's in a positive scenario, it can actually be a strength. In fact, I think most of our weaknesses are a shady side of a strength. If you'll think about that, in most of our cases, for instance, and I don't want to belabor this, but many of you are very compassionate and that's a strength for you. And the, and the sunny side of that is that you're very good to people and you help people. But isn't it true that there's a shady side to it? That if you're not careful, you can even adapt a, a victim mentality in a scenario, or you can begin to be good to people that will take advantage of you. That's just an example. I, I think with all of us, whatever our strengths are, there's a sunny side to it and a shady side to it. And and if you deal with anxieties, my guess is that sometimes you get the feeling that while everybody around you is playing checkers, you're playing 3D chess. And, and what causes us to be sucked into to dealing with anxiety on a big level is that oftentimes the, times the strength side of it has kept us out of trouble, or if you're in a group, has kept your group out of trouble, or if you're like myself and you manage a large organization, you can point to scenarios where your, your personality has kept the organization from serious difficulties. And so when anxieties come, we can say, well, hey, there's a positive side to the way I am. But if you're like me and you've ever dealt with anxiety in a big way where anxiety has begun to drive the train, then you know that that's a very unhealthy thing. And if you deal with a great deal of anxiety, there will be a point where anxiety will back you into a corner. Anxiety will make you leave the table. Anxiety will make you leave the party. And you say to yourself, I, I have come to the place where I begin to fear my fears more than I fear just about anything else. Whether you deal with anxieties on the periphery, if it's a marginal thing that every once in a while you're just anxious about something, or if you're like me and it's your lifelong battle, I want to take a few moments to talk to you in a message called The Sum of All Fears, I want to talk to us about where anxieties come from. Because last year, it was so important for me not just to learn to deal with my anxieties. Many of you in our four services here at New Spring are from the medical health arena, and a number of you are from the psychological 
health, mental, part of the mental health community. And, and you could deal with this issue from psychiatry. Obviously, that's not the direction I'm coming from today. I, I'm going to the, to, to the spiritual things. And, and I, there's value, there's benefit at looking at anxiety from just about any area. But I, I want to just go to the spiritual side of things today. And I want to talk to you about where I believe anxieties come from, the core, the root. That's what's important to me. I didn't want to just know how to deal with anxiety. I wanted to know why I was anxious. You say, well, Mark, it's just your personality. All right, that, that's a partial answer, but that doesn't take me to the core. It doesn't take me to where the sum of all fears comes from. Now, today, I, I'm going to take you to a place that when, I, when we get there, you might not agree with me. And I hope you always know that when you come to New Spring, I don't ever want to jam you. You know, this is not a church that tries to ram stuff down your throat. I don't want to jam you. I just want to seat at your table. And at the end of my talk today, when I tell you where I believe anxiety comes from, you may not agree with me. But all I'm asking is that you take it into consideration and that you think about it. Because I believe that for a lot of us like me, there is some real help here. But I'm going to take you in a direction that may feel a little strange. Where does anxiety come from? Well, first, let's just think about how anxiety works. Anxiety is a fear that something bad is going to happen in the future. Why do we have it? Well, I think we have it because we are cognizant of the, just the precariousness of life. Every one of us realizes that we're walking certain tightropes. And for instance, we're walking the tightrope today of, of health. You, you have health, I hope. I hope you feel good today. Some of you are struggling with your health, but most of us probably we feel all right today. But we're, we're, we know that even though we may be feeling good today, people get sick. Well, what do we have underneath us to mitigate those anxieties? Can something catch us? Well, we have nets underneath the tightrope that we're walking on. We take care of ourselves. We eat well. We have good health insurance. We have excellent medical care, which we do here in the Wichita area. We can say to ourselves, okay, I don't know, I feel good today, but if I get sick, well, I've, I've, I've hedged my bets, and so I can sort of deal with that anxiety by saying there is a net underneath me. But I don't know how your world works. In my world, I deal with thousands of people of all ages, and I see people at all ages crash through that net, and therein can lie anxiety. If you have friendships, you're walking a tightrope. You know, friendships are, are a precarious thing. Isn't it true that you can offend a friend without trying very hard sometimes? And the next thing you know, your friend is accusing you of not being there for them, and you're just doing your best just to function in life. And you're wondering, how did, how did that happen? So you're walking the tightrope, but you say, well, there's a net underneath me. My friend has good feelings toward me, but many of us know what it's like to crash through that net and lose a friendship. And any, any tightrope you want to talk about, we just are, we're, we're confronted with the precarious nature of life. I mean, for all of us, or at least most of us, there's going to be some significant relationship in our life. Most of us, that will be marriage. And that's a tightrope. Oh, yeah. But there's a net underneath us. I, I, my wife loves me. My husband loves me. Or my wife needs me. But 50% of marriages end in divorce, and we crash through that net. Oh, Kids, are you kidding me? There's a tightrope. But we hope there are nets underneath. And eventually it comes down to life itself. You, you know that life, anytime you get up in the morning, there's no guarantee that you're going to live until sunset. And we're walking the tightrope. Yeah, we have nets underneath us to catch us. You know, we talked about health and so on and so forth. 
And I'm guessing that a lot of us here like today, like me, we have life insurance so that if we die, well, there will be money to take care of our dependents. Now, in, in my circumstance, it's even a little bit bigger than that because when we built this preschool building over here in order to get the, the, the loan, the bank required that we take out huge life insurance policies on me so that if I died, you know, and I've always said if, if I die suddenly and we have my funeral, that the last words at my funeral need to be, and now for some nice parting gifts. <laughs> See, I think that, that that's not adequate for us because we realize, well, well wait a minute, there's, there's more to life than, I mean, if I break through the net of friendship, if I break through the net of marriage, if I fall through the net of health or whatever, what's going to be there to ultimately catch me? I think when we start asking questions like that, we're getting close to dealing with where anxiety truly comes from. The Bible's a great book because it's the Word of God, but it's a great book because it also gives us the stories of a lot of people who've dealt with parts of life that you and I are going to deal with. You're not going to crash through every net, I don't think, but we have a story in the Bible about a man who crashed through just about every net in life. His name is Job. And I'm not going to take a long time to tell the story, but I did a series on Job called Silence two or three years ago. It's either probably on the internet or it's in the bookstore. But in the life of Job, it's a strange story. Job is both the richest man in the world and the best guy in the world. We don't normally associate both things going together, but there's no sin in being rich. And Job just happened to be the richest man in the world and the godliest man in the world. If you saw Bentley in the poorest part of town, it wasn't a drug dealer. It was Job delivering groceries to widows and orphans. He was just a great guy. And you read all about this in Job chapter 1. I mean, Job is, has life. He has a wonderful marriage. He's got 10 sons and daughters. They're all grown. And what is really amazing, they all get along. Have you ever seen a family with 10 grown siblings who all just loved each other and got along? That's a miracle within itself. And they all grown. They all are successful. They all have homes of their own. They love being with each other so much that they just like have this movable feast going on. They're at one house for about six, seven days and another house for, you know, six, seven days. And it's just one continual party. His kids enjoying each other and having a good time. Job's got a great marriage. He's the wealthiest man in the world. Everybody loves him because he's good to everybody. But I also think that Job is a lot like, not, not in that, I would like to be like Job in that regard, but I think personality-wise, Job and I are a lot alike. Because I think we're going to get a clue in a few moments that even though Job's world is well-ordered, I think he has a fear, he has anxieties, that at any moment it could come unraveled. And it does one day. And Job has no idea why it happens, but God allows us to be in the amphitheater to know what's going on. This may freak some of you out, but this is in the Bible. You know, there is a God, but there's also a devil. And, and Satan was a, once a beautiful angel that God created, but he rebelled against God, and God thumped him out of heaven, along with a third of the angels that we know of as demons. And although Satan no longer has his spot in heaven, it seems, from what we derive in Job chapter 1, that he can still show up before God. And the reason he shows up before God is he shows up to rip you and me. In fact, one of the names for Satan means accuser. And that's, what, that's his deal. I mean, he loves to go before God because he hates God, and he, and he hates anything that God loves. And since God loves you and me, Satan loves to go before God and say, hey, do you see Mark? Do you see, you see her? you see him? 
And so in Job chapter 1, all the angels are appearing before God. Satan shows up with them. God sees him coming. He knows what he's up to, and God preempts him. God says, have you checked my boy Job out? <laughs> Satan says, Job, yeah, 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 he loves you. He loves you because, and this is something to pray for. Satan said, he loves you because you put a fence around him, and you won't let me get at him. Hey, that's an important prayer to pray. God, put a fence around my marriage. God, put a fence around my kids. And, and Satan said, sure, I mean, you, know, you give him everything, but I tell you what, God, you, you let me take his stuff away from you, and he'll flip you off. Uh, you let me take my, his stuff away from you, he'll flip you off. And God said, all right, you can do it. That can't touch his body, and he can't take his life. So one day, Job loses all his possessions. You read about it in Job chapter 1. Back in the day, they didn't measure wealth in currency or in real estate necessarily. Certainly not in the, you know, in the stock market. There was no stock market. It was a different kind of stock market. Wealth was measured in cattle. And Job had more than anybody else. But in one day, he lost everything. He had a messenger run in and say, hey, there was a band of raiders. They came. They took all your oxen and your donkeys. And while that guy's telling his story, a second guy came up and said, a lightning strike happened, and all the sheep were burned up, and all the shepherds. And just as, while he was telling his story, a third guy came up and said, a whole different band of raiders came, took all your camels. Boom, Job's bankrupt, just like that. But you know how it is when we crash through a net? We say, well, at least I still have my family. At least I still have my health. At least I still have my marriage. And another messenger came up and told Job the unthinkable. He said, all ten of your kids were in a house eating and drinking. And a tornado came and killed all 10 of your kids. And my guess is some grandkids too. Satan had told God that Job would flip him off if, if he did that. But instead of doing that, Job said, well, you know, I didn't come into this world with anything. I'm not leaving with anything. I'm going to find a way to say something good about God because I still have my health and I still have my marriage. <laughs> and so, scene two. Satan shows up before God in heaven, and God said, hey, did you see what happened there? I told you my boy Job would come through, and Satan said, skin for skin. You let me touch his body, and he'll flip you off. God said, all right. You can touch his health, but you can't take his life. And from that moment on, Job had a disease that nobody knew anything about at the time. He had lesions from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. I mean, he, his lesions were awful. In fact, the Bible's graphic about it. He stunk, and nobody would, I mean, before Job had servants on top of servants, he had staff on top of staff, and they loved him, and it was all, he's like, Mr. Job, what can we do for you today? And yet the Bible talks about he got so sick, and he smelled so bad, that even his servants and his friends couldn't get close to him. And his wife, he said, well, I've still got my marriage, but his wife said, hey, Job, why don't you flip God off and just die? Well, he lost his wealth, he lost his kids, he lost his health. For all intents and purposes, he had lost his marriage. Still, I've got my friends, but his three friends came over and they told him, hey, you know what, you must have done something really bad to tort God like this. He didn't have anything. Let me tell you why I think Job dealt with anxieties. Because even when life was great, look at what he said in Job chapter 3. He said, what I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. 
Did you know that when Job's kids would get together for a party, that Job would offer sacrifices for each one of his kids because he said, how do I know? Maybe one of them accidentally mm, disrespected God. So I'm just going to do a sacrifice for each one of my kids. See, I think Job had a lot of my personality in him. Even though he had a well-ordered world, he had this anxiety about what's going to happen if I crash through the net. Well, let me ask you a question. I don't think it's going to happen like happened with Job, but what, what are you going to do if you crash through some of life's nets and you wind up with your well-ordered world falling apart? I think what's going to happen is you and I are going to look at and deal with whether or not we can cope with the sum of all fears. This is where the message is going to get controversial, and I'm going to ask you for a little indulgence. I don't think our anxieties come from a concern that our well-ordered world is going to come undone. I think our anxieties come from a deeper place. If this were a geometric proof, it would work something like this. I am convinced every human being starts with a reality and an understanding that there is a God. Now, I have good friends who are atheists who would, who would, they would push back against me. And you may too. But I think we all know there's a God. I think it's just unavoidable. I mean, after all, there's just, there's just too much in our world. It just, it just points to the fact that there's a God. The order of the universe Life, the cell, the inner reaction, the inner relationship of all the systems of the world. I mean, we think as human beings that we're really something, but you realize we didn't invent mathematics. We just discovered it. The core of mathematics was true before there were any human beings. I'm going to find out who my really old baby boomers are right here. When I was in the fourth grade, the word was out that we were going to study the new math. The new math. Freaked all the moms out. I can remember, I can remember at church, all the moms clustering together. The new math, the new math. Oh, no. We don't know how to teach our kids. We're just going to be left behind. We don't know how, how are we going to help our kids learn the new math. Scared me. I went to school in the fourth grade, picked it up in a couple of days. It was junk. It was a little messing with the base systems. And it, it, it was like the new Coke. It didn't last very long. <laughs> you know why? Because there's not any new math. Of course not. Mankind didn't create math. We just discovered the principles of it. We didn't create genetics. We just discovered genetics. We didn't create ast astronomy. We just discovered what's already there. We're proud of ourselves because we can manipulate some of the, you know, some of God's creation. That he, I just believe at the core, we all know there is a God. I think that sometimes people deny that there's a God for this very reason. And, and, and one of the things that I love kidding my atheist friends about is that they invest a lot of emotion in this thing. I mean, I, 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 there are a lot of things people believe in I don't believe in, but I don't lose any emotion over it. I got friends who believe in UFOs. I don't. I don't invest any emotion in it at all. I got friends who believe in ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts, but I don't put it on buses. See, that's the thing. 
I, I think deep down inside, we all know that there is a God. I mean, here's, you know, think about the cell for a moment. 46 chromosomes. That's an odd number. But 23 pairs of chromosomes in all your cells, except for your sex cells, which only have 23, so that when your mom and dad got together and, and their sex cells formed the zygote, there happened to be, guess what, 46, 46 chromosomes. Very cool. Honestly, I'm not trying to rip anybody. I'm just thinking if we can think that that happened by accident, we need a keeper. I think we know there's a God. Look at what the Bible has to say. This is from the book of Romans. The Bible says, since what may be known about God, and, and, and that's inferring that there's a lot of stuff about God that we don't know, but that's not what the Bible's talking about here. You know, it's, Mark Twain said, it's not the stuff I don't understand in the Bible that gives me trouble, it's what I do understand. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, that's everybody, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What does God say is apparent from the creation? His power, wow, it's awesome. We look at the universe, we look at under the microscope, his power is awesome. And Here's where anxiety starts slipping in, his nature. When I look at God's nature from what is seen, the one thing it teaches me is that God is not the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky. Some people think he is. You know, God is a disinterested, bearded, ancient figure in the heavens who just says, everybody play nice now down there on the earth and do the best you can and I'll see you when you get to heaven. But when I look at creation, I'm cognizant of the fact that that's not the sort of God we're dealing with. We're dealing with the God of precision. We're dealing with the God of order. We're dealing with a God with very high expectations. And therein lies, I am convinced, the source of our anxieties. Because we put two and two together and we think, okay, there is a God, he is an awesome God, he's very powerful, he has high expectations because of his precise order, and I am a flawed person. How am I, as a flawed person, going to answer a God who has such precise and high expectations? Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't agree with me. I am convinced that that's the core of all fears. And one of the reasons why we put off you know, the thought of dying or the thought of aging because we're, we're aware of the fact, hmm, somewhere out there in the future, I am likely to interact with this huge God and I've got all these problems and all these flaws. Today, in the few moments that we have left in this message, I would like to help you and me be at peace with who God is and our relationship with him. I want to help you, and in many cases, here's the thing. Many, many of you, you say, well, Mark, um, I've been in church all my life, and I've heard the scriptures all my life, but many of us still deal with anxiety, and here's why. Although we have heard it with our ears, I'm not sure we've really heard it with our hearts. And because of that, our mind tells us that God is a loving God, 
But our hearts tell us that God is a God that can't be pleased. And we're flawed. I, I, I just want a, to grab me by the shoulders and grab you by the shoulders in love today and say, wait a minute. We need to settle this. We need to deal with this once and for all. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all going to crash through some of life's nets. But I want to make sure that we understand that the main net of all is secure. And that's your relationship with God. With that in mind, I'm going to take some liberty here today. And I want to take you to the mechanics of the good news. When I was going through the worst part of my uncertainties, it was very important for me to go back to what I knew for sure. And this is the chapter I went to. I don't know if it will help you, but it helped me deal with the source of all fears. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Do you know what scares most of us? We know we're flawed because we know ourselves. We know everything about what we've thought. We know everything about what we've done. Our fear is that there are good people. There are people that are going to pass. See, righteous means rightness. Righteous means, we don't use that term anymore, it just means God accepts. And our, our fear is, you know what, I'm, I'm afraid God won't accept me, but I think there are people whom God would accept. And this is the reason why a lot of people don't go to church. It's like, well, I know my life is, is freaking messed up, but I think there are people at church that have it all together. Isn't it good to read in Romans 3.10? There is no one righteous. God, before, before we say anything, God catches us. Not even one. Oh, what about Billy Graham? Oh, what about Mother Teresa? Read it one more time. There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, part of us wants to let out a sigh of relief and say, okay, at least we're all in the same boat. But that still leaves us an issue because there is a God. He's an awesome God. He's a God with great precision and order. Then we're all going to have to stand before him someday. Well, now that just puts us all in the same trouble. There's no one right not even one in God's sight. Well, the Bible says, based on that, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Now, what does the law mean there? If you look at the word law, law is the do's and the don'ts. See, here's the thing. A lot of us feel like we're going to come in underneath the cup point because there's some do's and don'ts that we haven't obeyed. But notice the Bible says, since we're all guilty before God, nobody is going to be right in God's sight. No one's going to rise up to the level of expectation in God's sight or a level of acceptance by the do's and the don'ts. So are we all doomed? Well, that'd be a happy thing to learn on a cloudy morning. No. Let, let, let me show you what I think are some of the most important words in your Bible. But now... First of all, aren't you glad for the word but? This is like nobody's good enough in God's sight. But, but now, a righteousness, look at these two phrases, from God and apart from the law has been made known. In other words, there is a rightness. There is a way for us to be accepted. There is this rightness. It comes from God. And aren't you glad it's apart from the do's and the don'ts? Are you kidding me? 
All of our life we've measured ourselves by the do's and the don'ts. And many of us have been in traditional religion. And we've been in circumstances where like it's been a guilt message. And it's been like, man, you know, you walk, you, I, if I don't feel bad after I've been to church, it hasn't been a good experience. The Bible says there is a rightness from God, and I'm causing some of you religious types to become very queasy right now, but we're reading the Bible. There is a rightness from God, apart from the law, that's been made known. This righteousness, this is the second time the Bible's told us this, from God comes by faith in Jesus Christ to, get. tell me the next word, to all who how does the rightness come? It, it's a rightness that doesn't come from you and me. It's not from our conduct. It's not from our behavior. It's not because we've done all the do's and haven't done all the don'ts. It is because a rightness comes from God as a gift to all who will believe. Now, verse 24. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that's Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, some of you have an old translation that says propitiation, but that's a word you didn't use 12 times last week, nor did I. But a lot of you are in law, and you know the concept very well. Propitiation means satisfaction. In other words, if you have a settlement, then both sides have been propitiated. They have accepted the sac, they've settled, they've both settled, they both agreed to it. And here's, here's what the Bible says. God presented Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice of satisfaction. God settled at that moment. All the sins, all the failures, all the flaws in our life and our past, God accepted at that moment through faith in his blood. Now here's the big question, and this is the reason why I think a lot of us struggle, especially those of us who've come from religious backgrounds. We say, well, wait a minute. Now, that can't be right, because God can't just forgive me like that. God just can't sweep my sins under the rug. I mean, first of all, we wouldn't even have any respect for a human judge who did that. What if there's a human judge that sat on the bench and just said, oh, we're just going to pretend you didn't do anything wrong. I think we know that God isn't like that. But look at what the Bible says. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood became a currency that paid for all our sins. And when God looked down and saw his son sacrificed for our sins, he was satisfied and he could still be completely, totally just and at the same time be the one who justifies us. Justifies means to make right. Do you feel that yet? Do you feel that you could actually leave your guilt at the foot of a Roman cross by faith? And even though you've done things you shouldn't have done and haven't done things you should do, could you by faith walk away and say, I have a rightness with God because I have put my confidence in Jesus Christ? My guess is that we still struggle with that and we say, well, wait a minute, there are questions. And God knew we would have some. In what I believe is the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, God, God sort of anticipates our three questions. The first question he asks is in verse 33, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Because you can say, well, wait a minute, Mark, there are people, oh, let me ask you a question. 
isn't it true there are bad things in your life that you've never been called to account for? Okay, just keeping it real here. Unscrew the halos. I mean, you say, I've been called to, I, I was caught by the patrolman doing 75 in a 40 mile an hour zone. I've been caught for that. But haven't you done it? Sometimes you didn't get caught. Have it, has, isn't it true that there are things in your life? And so there could be this thought, well, wait a minute. What if, I get, what if somebody comes out of nowhere and says, I know what Mark did. I know what she did. I, 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 and, and the Bible says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing. God is the boss of heaven. If you don't like a decision in the circuit court, you can appeal it to the Supreme Court. If you don't like God's decision, there's no place to appeal it to. And so the Bible is saying, who will accuse us? And the answer is no, nobody, because there's, there's no place to take. If somebody didn't like us, if somebody thought we shouldn't be in heaven, you say, Mark, my ex will clearly think I shouldn't be in heaven. Well, I will tell you this, he can't accuse you before God because God is the boss and God says you're okay. Who then will condemn us? Verse 34. No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Oh, what a court. You got the judge who has already said, I'm satisfied. Her sins have been paid for by Jesus. I'm satisfied. No problem with her. And then on top of that, the only attorney presenting the case there is your personal defense lawyer, Jesus Christ, who, if anything ever comes up, he can say, I died for her. I died for him. <laughs> I know we're not a real religious church, but it could be that a very religious person has sort of slipped in. Here. <laughs> and you're mad at me. Even though I'm reading the Bible. Because you're saying that is too soft. Well, let me ask you a question. What's your hope? Because you know yourself, and I, and I know myself, and the fact of the matter is, if it's not on this basis of grace, we're not just dead, we're so dead. But somebody can say, well, wait a minute. Now, here's how I think here's how it works, Mark. I, I, I think you're right up to a point. I think God does receive us unconditionally. And I think God does love us. And I think Jesus did die for us. And I really believe that if you put confidence in Jesus, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you of your sins. But you got to live it. It would be like if somebody came to you and said, I don't want to give you a brand new car, and I've made the down payment, and the next 59 are yours. You say, well, that's not exactly a gift. But there's some people who have the idea that that's what salvation is like. You, you come to God and you ask him to forgive you, but God says, oh, but you have to live it. Well, we already know that living it would require perfection. So somebody could ask the question, okay, well, what if somewhere out there in the future you do something wrong? What if something screws up the deal? And God said, oh, you were okay back there in September of 2011, but boy, what you did in January just blew the deal. See, the reason why we have insecurity about that is that happens in marriage, and it can happen in your career. Look at this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And look at this. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. To me, what God showed me is the core of all fear is that something might not be right between us and God because we know ourselves and we know what an awesome God he is. And how can he love us with all our flaw? How can he love us with all our guilt? And the answer is he put his son on the cross so he could take all of our guilt away and all of our sin. 
and if you crash through every net. Well, here are the words that meant so much to me when I had a difficult time. I've always loved these words from Deuteronomy, where the Bible says, underneath are the everlasting arms. I hope you never crash through the net of your health or your marriage or your kids. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing can ever separate you from God's love. Underneath are the everlasting arms. There's a song that Christians have sung through the years that really comes out of a story. It was a guy named Horatio Spafford in the 1800s who was a believer. And he had, like Job, he had life going on. He was wealthy. He had a lot of real estate in downtown Chicago. Five kids, one boy and four girls. And he loved God and loved his church. But like Job, his life began to unravel. His boy died. And while they were still grieving from that, the Chicago fire came, burned up most of his buildings. He lost nearly everything. Spafford felt like his wife and his four girls had suffered about all they could suffer and that they needed to just get out of Chicago for a while, see something different. So he gave them a trip to Europe. He put them on a ship bound for Europe, but unfortunately, the ship mid-Atlantic collided and went down, and all four of his daughters were drowned. His wife sent back the poignant message, saved alone, what shall I do? He told her to go on to Europe and that he would come on himself. And all alone, Spafford now, having lost his boy and his four daughters and just about all his wealth, got on the ship. And he asked the captain, he said, when we get to the spot where the ship went down and my daughter's drowned, he said, would you just point it out to me? And the captain did. And Spafford took a piece of paper and a pen and he began to write down some words. When peace like a river attends my way, sorrows like sea bills roll, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it is well with my soul. When
it well with your soul? Because if it is, you can deal with anything. Underneath, beneath are the everlasting arms. Now, I'm asking you whether you're, this is the first time you've ever been in church in your life, or you're like me and you've been in church all your life. I'm asking you, have you by faith been to the cross of Jesus Christ and laid your guilt down and all your baggage and all your failures? Have you laid your guilt down and said, I know I can face a perfect God because the man on this cross has paid for my sins? But that's the only way you're getting in. Say, Mark, I'm getting in because of my religion. You're going to get the shock of your life five seconds after you die. There is only one way to get in, and that's a gift. But the good news is, by faith, if you would come before Jesus and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you, and I'm putting my confidence in you, you can take all your guilt and all your failures and your past, and even, yeah, the stuff that you can't get straight now, and you can lay it at the foot of the cross, because there's a rightness from God, apart from the do's and don'ts, that's a gift for anybody who will receive Jesus. Would you be open to doing that today? I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that just receive the gift. And I'll pray it slowly so you can think about the words. But if you're ready to just leave it there and live in freedom and live free from fear and knowing that your relationship with an everlasting God is settled, why don't you pray with me? Dear God, I know I'm flawed. I wish I could be perfect, but I can't. But I saw the Bible say that there's a rightness from you, apart from the law, that comes to all who put faith in Jesus. Well, I'm part of that all. And I'm putting all my confidence in Jesus. I abandon all confidence in myself for religion. I'm putting all my confidence in Jesus. Your word declares that I am free. Thank you for saving me. With your help, I will follow the risen Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.